Hey guys, can you believe that it is already November? It's always so bittersweet for me because I'm absolutely obsessed with Halloween. So I'm so sad to take down all my skeletons and Halloween decorations. But I also get excited for the upcoming holidays. I hope that you're all enjoying your fall and taking the time to appreciate the change in weather and in nature. It really is kind of magical to experience it, even in a place like Florida that's always warm. At least it's much cooler now, and I don't feel that I need to put on a pound of sunscreen every time I go on the court to teach. <laughs> I hope that you're enjoying the episodes so far. We truly have covered so many different topics from coaching to coaching lifestyle to gear, club management, other racket sports, the mental side of the game, doubles, being a tennis parent, owning a tennis club, sustainability. It's been so, so, so fun. And today's episode, I'm covering a topic that we haven't really discussed before. Today, you get to hear my conversation with Eric Loftus covering court construction of multiple racket sports. Now, don't worry, it's not as boring as you might think it is, I promise. Eric has a great personality and he shared so much with us. We covered some spicy topics like pickleball taking over tennis courts and the noise issue with pickle, the challenges for building more padel courts, why we don't have red clay courts in the US, to name a few. And I know you won't want to miss out on this conversation. Now, while I think it is important to recognize challenges in our industry, I am a big believer in staying solution-oriented and not dwelling on the problem. So if there are some solutions or thoughts that you have regarding any of the challenges discussed here, please reach out to me. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Visit our page at vitatennispodcast.com for ways to contact me or simply look at the show notes. Make sure to check out our page, though, and check out our other episodes. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there, only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. Today, I get to talk with Eric Loftus. He is the vice president and partner at Cape and Island Tennis, which is New England's largest tennis court and running track contractor. He is also the president of Northeast Paddle, a full-service Padel construction management and logistics firm. Before entering the sports construction business, he was in sales and business development in the investment real estate industry. Eric's an avid tennis player and lives in Cape Cod. Welcome, Eric, to Vita Tennis. Did I get all of that right? You nailed it. Thank you so much, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to learn uh, about something that I'm actually not too familiar with, the construction world. So how did you get into that whole world of, of building tennis courts and padel courts? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I kind of got lucky, really. I grew up in this town, so we're in Cassett, Massachusetts. It's a part of Bourne. And I grew up here, and the founder, started, Gordy Pierce, started this company back in 1972. It was a relatively small contractor, but very high quality a great reputation. I grew up with his kids and his nephew specifically. I moved away. I was up in Boston and uh, all sorts of other places, really. I was working a bit in the investment real estate uh, side of things and wanted to move back to Cape Cod. And they were looking to kind of grow the racket sports division of the company at that point. It was almost all tennis courts. And the founder's nephew has, is a very good childhood friend of mine. And Christoph, he runs the track side of the business, and I came in to run sales. So it was a great way to come home and work with a family friend, a longtime childhood friend, build something up in a recreational industry, and it's kind of stuck to it. So over a number of years, we, you know, I took over the division, and we're kind of in the process of purchasing the company from the founder. So we're kind of off for the next generation and kind of really, really excited. I feel very fortunate to be able to be in this family business that does such great quality work, work with someone I've known since I was 12 years old and we're still, we can still remain good friends. You know, I joke that we work very well together because we don't work together. So mm -hmm. he runs his side of things. I run my side and it, it seems to be working so far. That's awesome. And do you get to play racket sports? I mean, I know you play tennis, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, realistically, I played baseball, football, and actually played rugby in college, but I never picked up a racket till I accepted this job at 34 years old. So that's... Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll be 47 next month. So I figured I had to learn these finesse games, but now I'm all in. So I play, yeah, I play platform. I, I play tennis, platform tennis in the winter. I just started learning squash this last year, which has been very humbling. And now starting to play paddle or padel as well when when I can and where I can. So what are you guys building the most for now? Like where where are you seeing the most growth, I guess? Is it in, in tennis still or is it in pickleball or padel? I mean, padel's growing a lot, especially in the Northeast. What are you guys seeing? What are some of the trends? Yeah, so I mean – before the pandemic, I would have told you that tennis was flat at best. You know, it's always did well in certain demographics, you know, the country club, the high-end residential, certain socioeconomic classes for what it's worth. And then, of course, every school has tennis courts, right, both public and private. So there was always kind of a steady business in there. But the pandemic has really boosted all racket sports because tennis was one of the few things that you could do. You, you know, you got four people on 7,200 square feet. You have a social distance. You can right. play tennis doors. And, of course, pickleball has this, this tailwind effect as well. To, to answer your question specifically, we're still building more tennis courts because we still do so many large batteries of courts. You know, we do a lot of college and private school work. There's plenty of opportunity to build pickleball courts, a lot of backyards. So one thing about a pickleball court is you don't need as much space, right? So it opens up yeah. a lot of backyards for for racket sports. We are, I mean, we're fortunate that we're over a year out for any new work right now. So we're kind of picking and choosing our jobs. But I would say the demand is strong for both right now. And then, of course, Padel is just about to knock down the doors of the United States here. You know, it's really just ready to burst here, especially in areas such as Miami, you're down in Florida, right? So in Florida and San Diego, and then there are little pockets of Padel in Philly. Now it's coming out of New York. And we got a number of projects coming online in the Boston area for the spring of 24. So we'll kind of see where we go with this. But I think really, it's really good time to be in rapid sports across the board. So the trends are good everywhere. I even hear platform tennis is up. And even squash to an extent is up, but that's very kind of niche. Yeah, very, very. Are there any major differences in how you build courts now compared to, say, I don't know, five to 10 years ago? Uh, It's a very good question. So on the hard court side, the trend about, okay, let me, let me back up a little bit. Historically, you could build a hard court out of either asphalt or what's called post-tension concrete. And used to be that post-tension concrete was significantly more expensive than asphalt. And it's still a bit more, but what's happened is the quality of asphalt has gone down dramatically over the last, I mean, really over the last 20 years, but even more so in the last 10 years. So in 1988, we started bringing post-tension concrete to the Northeast and we're first contractor to do that. And we've kind of held the bar there. we don't build an asphalt anymore. I and mean, you can still find somebody who'll build an asphalt, but we will build everything out of concrete. It's just like what Arthur Ashe and the U.S. Open is now. So we were shortlisted to go down there and bid that project. I guess it's probably four or five years ago now when it all got rebuilt. And there were three of us that went down and did that project. I feel grateful we did not win because it may have bankrupted us if we had won that job. But that's another story. So the great thing about concrete is that it never cracks. So all these courts that you see in the public parks, all these old asphalt courts with cracks and grass and everything else growing through it, it uh-huh. doesn't have those touch and concrete. So that's definitely a trend that we're on top of and kind of stayed on top of and probably kicked off here, uh, at least in the Northeast. And um, is the cost a lot higher? It's probably about 40% higher to 50% higher on the front end, but you never have to rebuild. Like we yeah. joke that we're building ourselves out of a business because we're going through all these courts with it. Just our first courts we ever built in post-tension concrete were in 1988 and 35 wow. years later, they're still bulletproof. So it's a great way to go. You know, like I said, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. Unfortunately, yeah. well, you're seeing cracks in the first and second year. Yeah. And now it's just drying out in Florida. They're putting fiberglass on just about every asphalt court that goes on because they know it's going to crack. 
So at Miami Open, for example, they they have an asphalt court that is only supposed to be there for three, four weeks, right, through qualies in the tournament. And they're putting fiberglass on top of that just to make sure that it stays together for that long. For just those couple weeks, that's insane. It's, it's probably cheap, just cheap insurance, really. Uh-huh. Three weeks, probably nothing's going to happen, but you can't have something happen in the second week of a major, you know, thousand ball tournament. So yeah. it's, it's worth doing. And what would you say are some of the most common mistakes that, that people make when maintaining courts? I'm talking mostly about hard trick courts. Obviously, for a hard court, there's not a ton of maintenance. I'd say for the clubs, the main so we open about 400 courts a year, kind of like opening a pool. Open the, you, you have to replace mm-hmm. the dressing, scarify, right. open the court, right? So I think what the main thing that you see in these clubs is, like, hey, we want to be open April 15th, let's say. But yeah. then you're on Martha's Vineyard, you understand. So most people don't really arrive till like the end of June, right? So they're not getting really that big play. Yeah. And they don't do, you know, we open the courts, we get them compacted, ready to play, but then no one really touches them or maintains them for another month until people start showing up. So mm-hmm. we start fluffing up and getting soft and you kind of, you can't really set it and forget it with those archery courts, you know? So there's, and each one of them are a little different. You know, they come, the, the stone that is hard true is a basalt from the Shenandoah Valley comes out of Charlottesville, Virginia. And it's really quarried out of the side of a mountain, right? So you get a little bit, it can be a little bit different year to year, depending on where in the mountain they're grabbing this stuff. And then you have different climate situations. You know, Martha's Vineyard's its own little microclimate. It stays a little bit warmer out there than it does maybe just south of Boston later in the season. So, and, you know, they get more or less rain. You really have to be on top of it. Like, you know, I'm sure you know your courts better than I do because you're there and you can see how they interact. They definitely have their own personality, each one. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's kind of unique, but you're right. It's the person. I always say, like, listen, we can set you up for the season, and you're going to be more of an expert on If you're paying attention, you're going to be more of an expert in a month than I am on your court. Yeah. And I can tell you how to tweak things if you're not getting the exact results you want, but you're going to know when to dial back the water, add more, add calcium chloride or magnesium chloride, how much to do. So it's they're they're nuanced, but it's like a bit of a labor of love. I tell people when they're building a court, you either got to – it's like maintaining a lawn or a yard. You want to love to do it yourself or you better have somebody who's going to do it. And I hear a lot that the all the cores that are getting built now, the hard tree cores that are getting built now are mostly hydro courts. Is there no construction of, you know, just regular above water irrigation courts at the moment? Uh, I wouldn't say there's none. Hydro court is kind of, there's a couple, subsurface irrigation is... A couple different brands of how the carts are watered from underneath versus being sprinkler irrigated from the top, right? Mm-hmm. So you use less water because a lot of times if you have a windy day and you got sprinklers going, you're gonna lose a lot of that to evaporation and wind. You know, there's you get more uniform uh coverage of water because it's all being watered up from underneath. So in if things if the system's running right, then they're being essentially perfectly watered at all times, right? Yeah. Rather than kind of missing a spot in the corners. And one thing from a club perspective, a lot of clubs, you know, I play at a club that has sprinkler irrigated old clay courts that are top dressed with hard trip. Between 11 and 1 each day, they're shut down, they're watered, they're rolled and everything else. If you have the hydro courts or the hard, subsurface irrigated courts, you don't have to shut them down in the middle of that. So you have, especially now we have this surge in racket sports, right, and demand for courts. To have those extra two, or kind of those are usually the hottest part of the day. But you know, in the spring and fall, and maybe a little cloud cover, it's still extra time that members or people can play and use their courts versus having to be off them. Yeah, and I always wondered, and I don't know, maybe you can enlighten me on this because I don't, I don't really know. I always wonder why all the courts, all the clay here in the U.S. or most of it is hard true. Why? Why is there no red clay? Especially now we're bringing Padel from Europe, right? Like, why are we not bringing red clay courts? <laughs> well, because we don't have the raw material for the most part. So if you have like Roland Garros or all the clay court swing, right? So 
A lot of that is crushed brick tile that is big in Spain and Italy and everything else. So it's easy for those factories to take that brick dust and, I mean, and break the bricks down and bag it and use it as top dressing. It's what's readily available. So that's really kind of what happened from everything that I've learned is why it's so prevalent in in Europe because the the raw material is a lot more readily available. Hard true will bring in they call it European red, and but they will bring you can get that brick dust and top dress it. We made, we built a subsurface irrigated red clay court last year. It looks great. I mean, it's really really cool. But realistically, you're building it mostly in hard true because of the way that the water migrates through the system and then you're just capping it with the red with the red brick dust on top so there's you can do it but it's a lot more expensive you know to get get it from europe obviously you're bringing pallets and pallets of smashed crate clay tiles or brick dust essentially because you can't find that here no i mean you look i mean i suppose in certain parts of the country you have yeah it's just not readily available as a tennis product you know Okay. And maybe maybe there's a market for it. Obviously, Hard True, Hard True is a great product. It definitely holds water well. It remains hard, remains stiff. It's great to play on. And I guess in some areas maybe it's good enough. And people people sometimes want that exotic color. But you know what's interesting about like Roland Garros is that that's actually limestone underneath, which we don't really have up here in the Northeast. The whole construction is a little bit different. So tradition, a lot of times, is using what you had in, in place. And a lot of times in Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard especially, there are these clay courts out there that people would just take clay, even from like the Gayhead Cliffs, and just put it down in their backyard and <laughs> compact it. And now they got a clay court. And that's how a lot of those courts, there are places up in Chilmark that are built like that. You know, oh, really? And, I haven't seen that. I no, saw the, the red clay courts in Nantucket. Yes, Gonset. Wow. So that's top dressed with a uh, product called Hattica, which is a shale out of Vermont. So you can get it, but if you'll notice that red is almost like a deeper, more maroon than, let's say, the red brick of the French Open. You know, so, yeah, you can kind of do it. You can't really build with that stuff. It's not stable enough. I won't bore you with all the details, but you can top dress with it. You can use that as clay. So yeah, it's, that's a beautiful, iconic club out there in Nantucket. And we do a couple of those and a club. We open a couple of clubs with that product as well. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you if you, if you guys do grass courts at all. No, we haven't. There's not enough. I always say there's not really enough of a market to become experts in it. You need like the guys who are really, really good at it. Let's say the like the guys at Longwood, or I mean, there's probably I could have this wrong, but I think there's only five or maybe six grass court clubs in New England, and they got to have a staff who it's almost like having someone who's an expert at putting greens in a golf course. Yeah, you know, those guys just really aren't readily available to to be the expert, you know, as far as like care and maintenance is concerned. So there really hasn't been much of a market for that and yeah. we've never gone down that road like i said because it wasn't worth training the guys for it yeah interesting and it definitely would be more for a seasonal place because i've taught at grass sport clubs and i mean by the end of the summer those courts are done <laughs> so yeah there's no way you have that around well i know like that i kind of bring up longwood again up in chestnut hill which is a beautiful i don't know how many grass courts they have but a lot and they'll rotate usage right so watch the wimbledon tournament right you're basically playing on dirt behind the baselines at the end of that tournament yeah versus grass yeah exactly now okay let's let's get into some pickable conversations because i'm i have some uh juicy questions for you <laughs> all right i'll pickable. see if i can be politically correct here <laughs> um so well, I'll start with an easier one. So are there any solutions in the in the construction on the construction side? Are there any solutions around the noise factor for pickleball, like creating some kind of sound barrier or anything like that? I know that there's talks about changing the ball and that doesn't make as much noise and things like that. But on the construction side, is there anything coming up there? Yeah, uh, there's a couple. There's a couple things out there. There's this company uh, called Acousta Block or Acousta Fence that's been out there for a number of years. And I think if I have heard this right, they kind of accidentally found themselves in the pickleball business. 
they were creating these noise dampening curtains that hang from the fence, mostly for like an industrial factory type situation. A big loud piece of machinery that's parting yeah. off the air out there, cording off the area. And then people started calling them left and right about pickleball. And then all of a sudden they put some <laughs> person on there. It's like I, I talked to them at one point. They're like, all I do all day is field these pickleball court courts. That's their dedicated job. Oh like, wow. <laughs> so it's pretty wild. It it doesn't it's not a magic bullet, you know, it's a, a big, heavy curtain that's kind of like a rubber mat with different layers in between, but it does, according to acoustic engineering and testing, does minimize the, the effect of the noise, especially the further you get away. I've learned a little bit about this, I'm by no means any expert, but from what I understand, the way sound travels, it's exponential as it as it lessens, for lack of a better term. So when you are if you go twice as far away, it's not uh, twice as quiet. It's almost like eight times as quiet. So as further you get away, it gets right. less, and less and less and less. So, and the closer that you put the, the sound barrier to the, let's say, offensive sound, the better it is at blocking it. Now, on the other side of this, there I was at one facility where they put acoustic block along the, around a golf course, right? And they put it on every panel of these two of this double uh, pickleball court so they're on all the fences were covered with it and it created such an echo because all the noise like you get out there and you start talking like we are right now and it's echoing in there because the sound's bouncing around like crazy wow, so you're trapping it in and never mind now you got an eight foot fence now it's all going up so yeah. in a perfect world if you had a 20 foot fence around a pickleball court and you put it close enough to uh close enough to whatever let's say housing or wherever people may be offended by the noise 20 feet should be high enough to trap the noise coming out 10 feet is okay anything below that is no good so that's one product we've used it we've seen it it definitely helps there's noise now you can be make a good living being putting on pickleball noise studies right now if you want to because everybody is trying to figure mm -hmm. out the noise issue and I kind of alluded offline about uh, the project we have here in Falmouth and there's a new project coming on basically to alleviate the pickleball demand and put it in a way that it's not going to be noisy but they're insisting on a sound study on this as well um, there's another product out there I've been involved with the uh, pickleball construction maintenance manual put out by the American Sports Builders Association it's basically a standardization of how courts should be built uh, around the country and <clears throat> There's another product that instead of deflecting the noise, it's more designed to absorb the noise. Like if you've ever been in a restaurant with high ceilings, you can see the the panels on top. There's kind of a soft yeah. fabric. Similar, right? So it's it hangs from the fence like a windscreen and has a thick uh, foam of some sort product that supposedly will absorb that noise rather than deflect it and mitigate the sound that way. I've not seen it in practice, but some of the sound testing engineers who were involved in this book committee with me, they work for USA Pickleball, it speaks very highly of it, uh, of the potential of really mitigating some of this noise. And as you said, there are, some of the companies are working on, although I've heard, I've heard this for like three years now, that people are working on making the ball and paddles softer and uh, more quiet, but I, I don't know if that's actually come to fruition yet. Yeah, I don't see how changing the equipment will not affect the game, you know, like the way that you play it, the way that it feels. So I think okay. it's going to be more on the construction side or, or, you know, coming up with some kind of solution around the noise factor. Can I, can I offer a counterpoint to that? Sure. The So first of all, pickleball in the mainstream is relatively new, right? Yeah. So if if it had to change now, I think this is the time to do it, right? Because you have everybody, yes, it's the feel, the slap of the ball, everything else, what they're used to. But mm -hmm. tennis has been, I mean, if I play on a artificial turf court, clay, hard court, I mean, you can make an argument that's three different games and we have to adapt to three different courts. The pros are playing on different styles of courts, different speed, and they adapt from place to place. That's why kind of what makes the major so interesting as you go from clay to grass to hardcore, you know, <clears throat> and back to hardcore again. But um, because of that change and different players excel on different services, et cetera, if the equipment was different, 
from place to place, let's say, all right, in this area, you have to use a softer ball and the pickleball players could learn to adapt and make it more kind of part of the game the way it is in tennis. And it's really kind of seamless in tennis. Nobody really complains about it. It's, it's almost unique to play on different surfaces. Right. So I don't know. I feel like if maybe they just need a better marketing team too. Yeah, so. maybe, maybe so. Uh, I just think it's really interesting because I, that's what I'll always hear as one of the main, like, I guess, negative side effects of pickleball is the noise. And usually it comes up when it's in the residential area and you're right there in, in Falmouth where these huge lawsuits just, you know, it was, you know, everybody was talking about it where it's in a residential area, right? And like one of the neighbors, not too happy about the noise. It's just crazy that it can get to that point. Like, yeah, I mean, you're next to a tennis courts, you're next to pickleball courts. Like that kind of just comes with it, right? It's like if you buy a house next to an airport. I mean, I don't know. There's there's so many intricacies and I don't know the legal side of it, but it's just like crazy to me that you can get to that point where it's that serious. <laughs> it's definitely polarizing. And there's two sides to every story, of course, right? But yeah, yeah live in Sarah, the, the courts that we built right down the street from my house that have been under lock and key for, we built them, I guess over a year and a half ago now. And they've been, they were open for six months and they've been under lock and key for a year now. Because- wow. You know, a neighbor, he has a house next to a school. The courts got rebuilt and and he wasn't happy with it. There was some compromise trying to make be made with the pickleball folks who didn't really follow the rules, so to speak. And then they got serious and got a, a judge. And now it's under what's called a temporary injunction. And what's likely going to happen here is those lines. So what it is, it's two tennis courts a single pickleball court and a basketball court. But on the two tennis courts, there are four sets of pickleball lines, right? So what will likely happen here is those lines will be painted over and the pickleball court will be pulled out and maybe put kids four square or something in there for the students at, at the school. And yeah. that probably assuage the issue. So at least you can start using them for tennis, right? So they're in the same time in, in, and found with here, there's another project under design to go to build 12 to 16 pickleball courts in a location that shouldn't be offensive to people. We'll see. Yeah. And like I said, there's going to be a, but they're doing a sound, sound study because there's condominiums 500 feet away. But with noise mitigation, everything I've read so far, there shouldn't be an issue as far as an offensive sound to a decibel level that can be proven as offensive or louder than anything else. So hopefully there is an elegant solution here, but like these, these little rules and all of these are being tested in towns all over America right now, for sure. Yeah, no, it's re it's really interesting too, because even at a club, if you're building pickleball courts around golf, more so than tennis, they like their silence, you know, they're right. a little bit more serious about that. And yeah, I don't see how, <laughs> how it wouldn't affect golf. So I think, yeah, Pickleball really needs to to come up with a solution to that so that it it stops, you know, pissing people off. But but yeah, I mean, hopefully in the next few years that will change. And what about, okay, a little bit more of a, I wouldn't say controversial, but it's something that I'm a little bit more passionate about, I guess. And, and my only issue with Pickleball, because I do enjoy Pickleball, my only problem with it is that I see a lot of tennis courts being turned into pickleball and not a big fan of that. As a passionate tennis fan, to me, it's just like almost like an insult <laughs> to, to see that happen. So I don't know if you have any thoughts like on the construction side, right? Or the permit side. I don't know how all that works, but is, is there anything that we can do to stop that from happening or I don't know, anything that you can share with us? Yeah. I mean, I think... What you're going to have to do, I mean, you can't right now in in pickleball, sup, demands outstripping supply mm -hmm. by dramatic levels, right? So people want to play. I mean, that's that's for real. Yeah. You know, and uh, a lot of the folks are, have the time and energy and know how to kind of work their way through the recreation departments of these individual towns because that's where you're seeing a lot of the build out, right? Is pressuring these towns to build courts or stripe originally it was stripe existing tennis courts. Like, yeah. all right, just let us put lines on these courts, no harm, no foul. And 
I think the solution though is building dedicated pickleball courts. So you can have dedicated as now, I mean, it, it takes a little while for a town to get money together, right? To get demand, money, approval, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say there's a two to three year cycle on these things. But what you're seeing is more and more of these towns, they just have to capitulate to this demand, right? So they're, like I said, this one in Falmouth and Barnesville, there's a 10-court facility in Mashpee. There's a, I don't know, something, maybe another 10 courts, eight or, eight or 10 courts. And they're building, and if the people have a place to play, they'll probably leave the tennis courts alone. You know, so you'll get, right. I think a lot of the clubs, you know, the clubs is a financial decision because now you have four people on a tennis court let's say paying $25 each per hour or hour and a half, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you sit there and you have a demand for pickleball and you can put four courts on a tennis court with people right. paying $25 a piece, the math just is too good to ignore, right? So you're going to see you're going to see that happen. But as more and more, I think you're going to get to a, a well, I don't know say saturation point, but I think you're going to get to a point where there's enough public pickleball courts being built that it'll take the pressure off the tennis because the tennis is definitely kind of booming as well. You know, you, if you listen to us, USTA, it's through the roof. I'm not sure all that math is correct, but the, but there's definitely a rise in demand as well. So you're, you see this kind of headbutting, but the, as more and more facilities get built, I think you'll alleviate your candleization of the tennis courts. That I agree is just kind of a shame to see you know, yeah, I mean, I get it for a for a private club. At the end of the day, you also got to do what's best for your members and what your members want. And if there's a demand for a pickleball and you had to figure out a way to do it, get it done, you do it, right? Because you're there for the members and, and they kind of own the club, right? But for a public space, that's where I really have a problem with it. And I just don't understand how, how that can happen. And to me, it's got to be, it's got to be a money saving thing. So I don't know if you just give me like a maybe a ballpark idea of what is it cost wise? What's the difference between laying down a court from ground zero or just turning a tennis court into a pickleball court? Like how much money are you saving there? It's a lot cheaper to turn to convert the tennis court, right? So what happens is what happens is the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So you mm-hmm. get you get these we'll just say the pickleball population because they are the ones who are kind of driving a lot of this right now. Right. And to be fair, they're also driving reconstruction of tennis courts because a lot of the facilities wouldn't be rebuilt as tennis courts or a combination of the two, if it wasn't for the pickleball people driving, driving the project. Mm -hmm. But so if they're coming in and they're saying, let's say you get some community advocates or who want to play pickleball and you're looking at an old beat up, courts that maybe a town has let go for years and years and they say hey listen look nobody's playing tennis nobody's playing this there's never anybody out there well they're old beat up courts no one's going to go out there and play in these old beat up courts right so we've seen this time and time again once you rebuild it people come out of the woodwork they go buy rackets and they start playing but you have a, a community advocate group who wants to play pickleball constantly calling the rec departments of these towns saying nobody's using these courts let us use them let's put let let's put lines down anyway just let's put lines down it's going to cost whatever 1500 bucks and we can get six courts out there on these courts and then they're out there and then they're saying hey these courts kind of stink let's rebuild them and you know we're the pickleball players are now they've essentially taken over the courts you know so it's like all right now that we can come and take them over and like no one's playing tennis anyway however if those courts were there probably isn't that amount of passion in the tennis community. And a lot of tennis players do play at private clubs, basically convert and update those courts. So what we're seeing now in these different communities is, is both. I think it will, what you'll see is more net courts, both pickleball and tennis, and hopefully more people playing pickleball on their dedicated pickleball courts. Cause once they're playing dedicated pickleball courts, they're not going to want to play on lines on a tennis court. It's not, cool enough anymore they don't have you know they got their own courts they want to play on and i think maybe the tennis players will get them back yeah i i really can't stand that argument of the oh it's participation because that's what i hear here in tampa where i am uh, now is oh you know those courts weren't weren't being used you know we have so many people wanting to play and they already had their own 
uh, they already had turned some tennis courts into pickleball courts. And I got back from the summer and the whole facility is not just pickleball. There's no tennis. And to me, it's like, well, who says that? First of all, who's tracking that? Second of all, why is tennis the only one being compared to pickleball? Like there's a soccer field that is rarely ever used. There's a basketball court that rarely has people on there. And it depends what time of the day you go. So to me, it's just like, um, I don't know. I, I could go on and on and on about this, but it's just like such a shame to see that. And I just like, as a tennis coach and as a person that's loved tennis most of my life, it's just yeah. like, what do I do? Like, how can I, how can I stop this from happening? Is there anything that maybe our associations should be doing? Because now they're also promoting pickleball. So maybe like they can have grants, you know, or I don't know, something to help in the construction of pickleball so that we don't lose tennis courts while growing pickleball. Yeah. So. I, I think it's going to be a give and take a little bit if, if the last few years are any indication. Right. But I also think it's coming back. Like you said, it's, I mean, for a while, there was no place to play per town, right? And, you know, up here in the Northeast, the next push is going to be like, well, there's no indoor place to play. So a lot of yeah. folks want to play all winter long and, you know, they're, they're in the local gyms or whatever. And But the so, so the associations kind of have to embrace pickleball because they tried to put it off and kind of got burnt by it. Like the, And now it, it's such a juggernaut. It's, it's here to stay at some level, right? And for its worth in certain demographics that have, you know, it's, it is being played by younger people now, but by and large, it's still, it's still a fairly adult retired population. And I could be wrong. Someone's going to probably shoot me for that, but, it, <laughs> uh, but that's what I'm saying. Everybody seeing. knows, by the way, I think yeah. I, the math is not mathing when it comes to <laughs> yeah. that people that, you know, even like the ITA comes out with, I'm like, okay, I don't know that I truly believe that, but I don't know. <laughs> That's just know. But like I said, so there, as people, let's say, age out of tennis, they're looking to still play. I mean, there's definitely a plus side of, of people being out there and, and playing. I'm not trying to take any way, anything away from pickleball itself, but to your point, as far as courts being taken over, you just have a very passionate demographic who is of an age that knows how to work the system, you know, yeah. and they just know how to navigate it. And they're very effective and they don't take no for an answer. And I mean, a way good for them, right? Because they're they're getting what they want and they're they got groups and it's social and it's and yeah. it's great. It's keeping people off the couch. There's a of course. tons of benefits. But to your point though, I, I do think as more pickleball courts get built, that is gonna alleviate the tennis, the the cannibalization of the tennis courts. How you get more people enough of that demand playing tennis, I don't know. Like it's I don't know about where you are, but I know about other parts of Florida where we are like the the dedicated, passionate tennis folks are generally playing in a community or a club versus necessarily just going down and hitting on the public courts. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Florida is a little bit different. I think a lot of people play here because you can play outdoors and yeah. you can play for free, you're going to play for free, you know? But I do, you know, I think in the Northeast a little bit different too because the in, the whole like weather thing and indoors. But here in Florida, man, public places, they're packed. And you have public play, right? Yeah. I know there's that multiple facility in Naples. By the way, can you believe this? Here in Florida, you, you pay 10 bucks for an hour on a clay court. You tell that to somebody that lives in New York, they're, yeah. they're what? <laughs> I was joking around about Pinnell. Someone was asking me because we're doing a couple models on what people can charge. I was like, well, in New York, I went down for the U.S. Open, the tennis tournament, right? And I played Pinnell at a, a pop-up they have in, in Manhattan, Hudson Yards. The only court that I could get was at 7 a.m. And for four of us for that hour, I paid $256. Yep. That's New York. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so... You know, I think, and Fidel adds a whole another element to this whole conversation, right? So as more racket clubs are adding Fidel to, depending on where you're from, where to there, are you going to see people? So one good thing about, let's say, Fidel and the boom in the United States, mm -hmm. and one good thing about, another good thing about pickleball 
is that pickleball is exposing a whole group of people who may never have or would never have picked up a racket of any sort. Yeah, it's racket sports. It's to racket sports. Yeah. So in a way, rising tide lifts all boats, right? And I think this is obviously you got Pinellas huge in Latin America and Venezuela and you know in Spain yeah. and it's, it's booming everywhere. But they don't have this baked in people of let's say decent athletes. You know, like like I mentioned, I was 34 before I picked up a racket, right? I pl- played other sports and it probably would never have if I didn't join this company. But now, I mean, everybody I know at least held a pickleball paddle. So some of these yeah. guys are getting into it. And to be fair, some really good athletes are probably going to outgrow pickleball, want to go into either tennis, or if they see Pinnell being played next door, they're going to want to try it out. So it's uh, it should start really blossoming into racket sports across the board, I think. Yeah. I think so too. And I do have some questions for you about Padel. What are some of the major challenges that, that people need to be aware of, I guess, for the construction of uh, Padel courts? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, permitting for sure. So what I would have thought at this point, we were be a lot further ahead and a lot more courts on the ground than we do. And the, and what the problem is, is that you go to a town board and you have to explain to them what a padel court is. And, oh. and you're like, all right. So it's 14 feet high. It's got 10 plus feet of glass. Uh, and it's just going to be fine. Don't worry about it. They're like, what? Wait, wait, what? You know, and so. <laughs> just trust me. <laughs> yeah, just trust me. It's going to be great. Don't worry. You're not going to have glass <laughs> flying sideways. Go across. So like there's the, all the wind load calculations that we have here, especially, and especially where you are when you get into like the coastal areas and hurricane rating and everything else like that. Yeah. Um, it's presenting a problem, so a challenge, because there's no real precedent yet. You're gaining more of a precedent in Florida because people have been to the board before and presented them and they, you know, starting to know what they are. We're finding that structurally the building department's like, I don't even know what to do with this, right? So you have all these calculations that are almost all these courts are coming in from Spain at this point. There's a couple of American manufacturers that have just come online. But yeah. Yeah, but they don't have the way wind is calculated in Europe uh, as far as wind loads is different than it is in the United States. And I won't bore you with the nuances, but basically Europe does it more correctly than we do. But all the calculations are different. And so now all these, let's say, European calculations have to be converted into American units. American engineer has, which you have to pay for, has to stamp and say, yes, I will I agree that sinks structurally sound under wind and you can then present that to your municipal board authority. And it's just becoming like, like your head spinning people just, you know, because they don't know how to deal with it. They just put it off to the side. So like there's one project in Boston, I would have thought was gone in May. It's still kind of in permitting and they just, they're waiting for more clarity and it's, it's coming, but then you got to wait for the engineering to be done and their schedules and everybody's behind. So that's one outdoors. That's the main concern right now. I think that is just part of being early in the sport and early in developing as part of like the learning curve. And that will ease and get better over time. Indoors, I would say one of the challenges is ceiling height. So what it's recommended is that you have eight meters of clearance, so 24 to 25 feet of clearance for for the high lobs. You know, there was a the first uh, club in New York in Brooklyn at Padel House had 18 feet in their first location, still do in Williamsburg. And from what I understand from some of the players, they were clanging the ceiling a bit. People still wanted to play and they're still full, but at 18 feet, you were losing some balls. Their new location has 30 foot ceilings. So they're, uh, they've kind of rectified that. The other is a lot of these old New England buildings is, is that you have column spacing that is kind of in the way. So you have a third in American units, you got a court that's 66 feet by 33 feet, right? And you have a lot of these buildings that have 30 by 50 foot column spacing. So there's no way to actually drop the court in in between all these courts and in these buildings. So those are the two challenges that we're looking to overcome. Like warehouse space is great. There's not a ton up here in the Northeast because, or let's, let's say there's not a ton in populated areas where you'd have a draw of people for clubs. You know, the whole tennis club model, everything I've learned is that your catchment area for potential 
club members or players is a 20 minute drive. Yeah. So you're, that's really where your potential is to bring people into your club. Mm-hmm. Um, first movers, let's say if you're the only pedal club in, let's say Boston, people will drive. They're like, I drive to Boston to play squash because there's no squash courts near me because it's the only option available. Right. But once things get established, that's kind of your area. So a lot of that warehouse space isn't in areas that have, let's say, enough people to support a club. So you're retrofitting these old buildings and trying to do the best you can. And we're working with brokers all the time who are identifying properties so that we can package and basically have group for investors who are looking in the area to try to build these up. But those are those are challenges. But I think they'll be it's just kind of part of a new industry, you know, and it's it's uh, luckily it's not my only business because I'd probably be starting yeah. trying to take off, but it's, it's very exciting. It's going to happen. It will normalize, but yeah, be kind of prepared to go through some of those hurdles, at least on the front end. Yeah. I think there's a certain aspect to Padel. Maybe it's the glass that when you see it, it like pulls you in. It's attractive. You, cool, you, right? you yeah. use this thing. I want to try this. And then you go in and like, Oh, this is awesome, you know. So I think I think a lot of people that play tennis, as long as you know they're getting exposed to it, I think that it will naturally happen. I think it's going to take a while. But what would you say are you know quote unquote the, the things that we need to do to fu- to figure out a a good spot, I guess, to to build up a Delcor where there's going to be success, maybe like. Not right off the ground, obviously, but maybe, you know, within a few months, within the first year. I think in an urban area, I think right off the ground. You know, it's like right now this sport is crazy. Like I've never met anybody who played it and we're like, yeah, I, I didn't like that. You know, it's like yeah. anybody, especially with someone with racket sports background, right? Who are usually the people who are getting involved in playing this in the first place, to yeah. be fair. But the it turn, it's looking like demand or exposure creates demand with this sport. Like it happened in Philadelphia. Someone built a club right outside Phil and Val Kinwood. And they, and then all of a sudden people started playing there and all the country clubs in the area started putting courts in. It's happening in New York. Now people are starting to play these guys who commute in from uh, Westchester and Fairfield County. And now some of the clubs at like New, New Canaan field club just put in two courts at, at their place. The, Oh, wow. Um, Guilford Racket just put a court in, in in their court and that like just this last week. So as these guys are traveling, kind of the way pickleball happened up north, people go down south for the winter and come back and say, I want to play pickleball. I remember a woman probably six years ago, she ran Chamber of Commerce for Cape Cod and she called me up and she's like, Eric, I have 150 people want to play in a pickleball tournament in July. I want to know where the pickleball courts are in Cape Cod. So Patty, there are none. There are none. So it was like this demand. Everybody went down there and they came back here and they're like, we can't play. You know, how, how do we get our drug? Right. So they, and I, I see that happening now with, with Padel, like the guy where I play squash, like all those guys are chomping at the bit to be able to play the platform tennis players. So what's kind of interesting in the Northeast. So, you know, you have those platform or paddle courts out there on the vineyard. That's traditionally a winter sport. Right. But the game is very similar. You play off the screen, you get another shot, you get long points. And, you know, it's different in its nuances. It's faster on a pedal court than it is on on a platform tennis court. But those guys, that's going to be a natural progression because people are passionate about that game. And then they're going to go in and if they have that option and, and that that skill set will translate dramatically over to pedal. So I really think if you build, if you have parking, you have a place where people can play, you're going to see, you're going to see success pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think too, New York, Florida, California, I mean, they probably have a higher percentage of Europeans and Latin people and, you know, that have already been exposed to it. So you have a a good base of of people that will at least recognize and know what the heck it is. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that baked in 100%. And that's one thing, Boston, I love it. wouldn't say it's the most diverse place in the world. But, the you know, you don't necessarily have that. But to be fair, like I have I had a call with these three guys. There are three students at Babson, two from Spain, one from Panama. And they're like, they're hot on it. They get it. And 
I won't take long for other passionate racket sports players of whatever descent to kind of adapt to it, I believe. Yeah. And do you guys build platform courts or no? Platform tennis? We don't. There's only a few companies in the country that do it. It's uh, it's small enough and niche enough that it wasn't really worth us getting involved. And in. we almost invested in a company uh, that did it, but we've kind of stayed out of it. It's got, that market is fairly built out, at least we're in our part of the world. I did play it this this last month, actually, at the Bow yeah. House and tried it out. And it was similar to Vidal. It was it was very different. The ball bounces very different. And yeah. yeah, it was it was it was weird. I don't know. I felt more comfortable on the Padelco. I felt like I knew what I was doing a little bit more than than in platform. It's, it comes off soft at that screen. You know, it's funny. I have a, a buddy of mine is he was here as a pro on the Cape for the summer, what is uh on the Bahamian Davis Cup team. And his family was involved in the Padel Construction Company in the Bahamas and Miami for a bit. And I took him up and had him play platform. We just started our season a couple of weeks ago. You know, basically October is when we start up. And he, I mean, he was better than us very quickly because he's just such a good racket sports athlete <laughs> and he's played plenty of Padel. But he said, he's like, yeah, that was really fun. He goes, Padel is way better. I was like, very interesting, you know, so yeah, I was like, you know, but it, yeah, it's different. That ball's much heavier. It's a slower game and everything yeah. else. It's much more longer strategic. I like point. both. I just feel like I can't put the ball away and I can't get over that because that that's why I like to do in tennis is put the ball away, yeah. you yeah. know, and then in platform and even in Padel, like the points can take forever. So it I is. guess good for me to play that so that I'm more patient <laughs> but yeah exactly you can't just hit a winner right because because a chance yeah. is coming back you know one thing about Vidal, the whole floor is in versus platform where you have like tennis court lines right yeah uh, but and well i don't i haven't really tried it you know but that the big smash where you can come and bring it back i don't know maybe with your tennis skills and you can hit an overhead like that have you tried to smash the ball back into your court? No, I've not done a lot of overhead action yet. Just right. because of my shoulder. But I try to work the angles a little bit more. And yeah, I I, I love it. I mean, I don't get to play it as much. I, right. I there were more courts in Tampa. There's there's like, it's too far. It's like an yeah. hour. So I don't get to go that often. Yeah, yeah me neither. I go to New York and play. So, But yeah. it's going to change. It's going to change. I think, uh, so. I think a year from now is a totally different conversation, honestly. Once yeah. it's figured out. Oh. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking to us today. Before you go, I just have one last question for you. If you can share the Grand Slam moment of your career and the double bagel moment of your career. It can be on the court or on the business side, however you want to take it. Grand Slam moment. I mean, I think, I think we're kind of in it. I mean, I'm very excited for the future here for the kind of all racket sports. I'd like to say maybe we're running up to the final in the Grand Slam, you know? I don't know. It's <laughs> it's 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 a great community. There are a lot of great people. The market is such. I feel very fortunate to be in a industry that I love. And like I said, and, and working in a family business with people I like and respect. So I, I would say that's probably Grand Slam. She had plenty of double bagel moments, Jen. They, uh, like, there's a lot of, you don't see, we had a lot of grinding and falling behind the scenes, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we missed the initial boom on pickleball. You know, I was, if I'm being honest, I was a little bit snobby about it at the beginning. You know? <laughs> Almost I think the way. all tennis players, true tennis players were. <laughs> so, Maybe we didn't embrace it as fast as we could have, but hey, I don't know. Time will tell. But they're they're all learning experiences one way or the other. So absolutely, I'll, I'll that's I always ask that questions because we always learn from those moments. Sometimes those are the best. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. Yeah. But well, thanks. So I really appreciate the time. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. I love that I get to share these episodes with you and I really hope that you get something out of them. If you have had any light bulb moments or anything you want to share with me, please reach out to me at vitatennispodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Vita Tennis or Vita Tennis Podcast. I hope that you're killing it out there on and off the court, and I will see you next week for another episode of Vita Tennis.